Well, good evening, Hallows Church. Hope you're doing well. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to Mark chapter 10. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures tonight. And last week, Pastor Jeff from our North Seattle Expression came down and he kick-started our Advent series where each week we're looking at an explicit reason that the Scriptures declare as to why Jesus came. And last week that got kick-started with a, with a message on uh, how Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, it was a Christmas uh, Advent, beginning of our Advent series, we talked about Christmas and destruction, which aren't two things you regularly put together. It's not normally how your holiday season begins, but I assure you, Advent is something worth celebrating because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And tonight we're going to look at another reason why Christ came, and it is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. You know, back in 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was sitting in a German prison cell, and he was awaiting his trial, most likely to be executed for having opposed Hitler in the Third Reich and standing for Jesus and trying to promote the kingdom of God in the midst of a land where the kingdom of God was being utterly disgraced and dismissed, and people were being oppressed and persecuted of all ilks and stripes, and Bonhoeffer stood against that, and he landed him, he, that landed him in a prison cell, and as he was sitting in his jail in 1943, just a few weeks before the Advent season kicked off, he, pick up, he picked up a pen and wrote a letter to a friend, and in this letter, this is what he said. He said, a prison cell is completely dependent upon the fact that door, the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. A prison cell is completely dependent upon the fact that the door of freedom must be opened from the outside. And then he said this, it's not a bad picture of Advent. It's not a bad picture of Advent. He's zeroing on the fact that that you and I, the human condition, is one where if there's going to be any hope for us, if there's going to be any life for us, if there's going to be any help from us, it's got to come from outside of us. That's the message of Advent. It is the world isn't right, and the world can't fix itself. You aren't right, and you can't fix yourself. And so where is your help going to come from? Well, your help must come from outside of you. It must come from beyond you. And that is the glorious message of Advent, that our help has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we are all in a prison cell characterized by our sin and rebellion, and it is a prison cell that we cannot open ourselves. No prison cell can be opened from the inside. It must be opened from the outside. Now, I'm standing before you this morning, this evening, and I don't believe I have to convince anyone in this room that he or she is a sinner. I don't think I have to convince any of you of that fact. I think each and every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, if we consider the thoughts that we've had today, if we've considered the emotional reactions we've had to things today, if we consider even things that we've done today, I don't think I have to convince any person in this room that he or she is a sinner. But what I do think I have to convince you of and what I have to convince myself of on a daily basis is the fact that being a sinner is a big deal. It's a bigger deal than we realize. One of the ways that the scriptures def- describes the fallen human condition and that word sin as, as being who we are 
apart from God by nature and by choice, that sin kind of puts humanity in a cosmic situation that is troublesome. In fact, one of the ways that the Bible would talk about sin is that sin is maybe described as kind of cosmic treason. It is cosmic treason whereby we rebel against the God who made us in his image. We have rebelled against him and we've committed a cosmic offense that carries with it eternal consequences. Paul would write in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin, how much sin costs a person is death. Sin, being a sinner, is a very, very big deal. And one of the reasons why we as a church want to take sin seriously is because if we don't take sin seriously, we cannot take humanity seriously. And if you and I can't take humanity seriously, then we're not going to get to the gospel seriously. We want to think about sin well in terms of taking it seriously, recognizing it to be a big deal, because if we don't take sin seriously, we're not going to take humanity, humanity seriously, and we're not going to take the gospel seriously. You see, one of the things about being a human being created in God's image is that part of your humanity, part of the dignity of being a human, is that you are living a responsible life. Or better yet, you are living a life that you are responsible for. And if I ever give you the impression that you're not responsible for the life that you're living in the world right now, then I will be diminishing your humanity. I will be diminishing your humanity if I try to abdicate the responsibility you carry for the life that you're living in the world that is, as it relates to the God who made you, and as it relates to your fellow human beings that you are surrounded by. If we abdicate responsibility, we diminish our humanity. A guy by the name of C.S. Lewis kind of picked up on this. It was one of the things that frustrated him back in the day. And when he would consider kind of the legal system of his world and the time in which he lived, and I think there's some parallels that kind of flow over into our legal system today. And, and it drove him to write an article, and he titled the article, The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment. And in this article, C.S. Lewis actually bemoans our tendency to abandon the notion of just retribution. And in the place of just retribution, what we tend to do, or what we're, we have a tendency to do, is to replace that with humanitarian concerns for reform or social deterrence. And he bemoaned that because he felt like if you remove just retribution from your legal system or from your outlook on life in this world, if you remove that, then you will inevitably diminish our humanity. This is what he writes. He says, the humanitarian, the humanitarian theory removes from punishment the concept of that which is deserving. But the concept of that which is deserving is the only connecting link between punishment and justice. It is only as deserved or undeserved that a sentence can be considered just or unjust. He says, when we cease to consider that the criminal deserves and consider only what will cure him or deter others, we will tacitly remove him from the sphere of justice altogether. Instead of a person who is a subject with rights, we will now have an object. We'll view that person as a patient or worse, a case. 
saying if we remove ourselves from the realm of justice and we don't consider the responsibility we carry for our lives through this world, we diminish our humanity. And that's a thought I want to put into your minds tonight as we consider this reason why Jesus came. Because I want us, again, to take sin seriously so that we can take humanity seriously and we can take the gospel seriously. I want us to feel the gravity of our sin so that our gladness as we consider the joy of the Advent season might come bursting forth. You see, one of the tendencies we have when you think about this line of thinking is that we kind of take that mentality and sometimes we project that upon God. And we think that the way to get to God or the way to get out of our condition and to get out of the prison of sin or brokenness or whatever it might be, in order to do that, then you, it's all about moral rehabilitation. And so what that message communicates to, to people is that if you get religious, you can get right. But the message of Advent is the exact opposite of that. It doesn't matter how religious a person gets. You can't rehabilitate yourself out of your prison cell, so to speak. Somebody must come to you from outside of you to open the door and not only let you go free, but to actually take your place in the prison cell lest justice be thwarted. And so you want to think about this tonight because God refuses to remove you and I from the realm of justice. God would compromise his character and diminish our humanity if he chose to do just that. And so the question we want to ask ourselves, is it possible for justice to be served and for pardon to be granted simultaneously? Will our prison door ever be justly opened from outside of us? And this is the message of Advent. The message of Advent is absolutely yes. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. One of the most explicit, squared-up statements given by Jesus for why he entered the world, why God became man and lived the life that he did, why God became man and went to the cross. Listen, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hear it again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want us to meditate upon that verse basically by breaking it up into four parts and just thinking about the sections of it. And the very first thing you hear in verse 45 is, it speaks to the identity of Jesus, for even the Son of Man, and Jesus here speaking kind of in the third person, he's embracing this title, this messianic claim, and he's applying it to himself, the Son of Man. And this was Jesus' most, most favorite descriptors for himself. This is the one title that Jesus claimed for himself more than any other title in the Gospels. And since it was Jesus' favorite title, we, we need to consider what that, what that title tells us about who Jesus is. And I think on one hand, that title, the Son of Man, speaks to Jesus' deity. It speaks to the fact that Jesus is God. And the reason why I say that is because that title actually points back to the Old Testament. 
it points back to a moment in Daniel chapter 7 where, the, the, where Daniel is given a vision of this glorious heavenly figure who is referred to as the Son of Man. And it is a powerful picture of a powerful figure. Listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like, here it is, a son of man. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." A powerful, glorious figure. This is the one that Daniel saw. This is the one Jesus claimed to be. And consider what's being described about the Son of Man, saying that the earth in its fullness, everything belongs to him. That he is top dog in the universe. He has dominion over everything. A sovereign ruler, this kingly figure, all conveyed with the title, the Son of Man. But then notice what else he says. He says that the service of all the nations, that is, all the peoples on the planet, are destined to serve him. That their service is, in a sense, his rightful inheritance. It's a powerful depiction of Jesus' deity. And so the question becomes, how will that happen? How will that destiny be fulfilled? Will the Son of Man come into the world and force that type of submission? Will the Son of Man come into the world and force that kind of service? Or will he come into the world and woo that type of service? Will he come into the world and love that type of submission into being? And this is why we want to keep going and not only think about that verse as it relates to speaking to Jesus' deity. You also need to hear in the title, the Son of Man, it speaking of Jesus' humanity. It does echo Fourth, Jesus' humanity, just the very phrase, the Son of Man, it carries with it this ring of mortality, right? This ring of mortality is, as you and I know, that human beings can die. And it seems that Christ became human, God became man, so that he too can die. Now hear that, and then you turn back in your Bibles into Mark chapter 8. If you go back to Mark chapter 8... I'm going to show you moments where three times prior to this, this moment where Jesus connects his identity as the Son of Man with suffering and death, saying that this Son of Man, who's this glorious heavenly figure, is in the world. How is he going to win the service of the nations? How is he going to gain that reality or bring it into being through force or through love and submission? Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. Verse 31, Mark 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, there's the title, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Look at chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, you see the same thing. They, referring to the disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, there's the title, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Turn over to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. You see it there as well. 
And they, the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus would die. And, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The title, the Son of Man, speaks to Jesus' deity, this heavenly glorious figure whose destiny is to inherit the service of the nations, to inherit the service, the worship of all peoples on the planet. But how is he going to do that? Well, you got to consider how that title speaks also to his humanity, that the Son of Man came into the world to suffer and to die. He was going to win his inheritance through his own submission, his own submission to the will of his Father, according to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. That it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. It was the will of the Lord for the Son of God to take on flesh and to be crucified on a cross. This title, the Son of Man, should cause our hearts to swell this Advent season. Just swell in awe of who Jesus is and what Jesus was willing to do for us. The fact that in Jesus, God took on flesh. The eternal one became temporal. The unlimited one became limited. The unkillable one became killable. This is who entered the world in the first advent. This is the one who came to us to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. So you consider that phrase, the son of man, but then you also consider the next phrase, the son of man came that he voluntarily, willfully entered the world. Jesus was not forced to come. Christ did not have to enter the world as he did. He did not have to do the things that he did. Everything he did with his coming, he did voluntarily. He did willfully. He wanted to do. Jesus wanted to suffer and die because he knew that was required to set people like you and I free. He came volitional. A, a volitional implication is, is hidden in that word, he came. And this makes Jesus quite different from you and I. You and I showed up into the world, why? I don't know. You had no say in your birth, did you? You had no say on if you would be born. You had no say on when you would be born. You had no say on where you would be born. You had no say in what gender with which you would be born or what ethnicity you would be born. You had no say in any of those things. But if you listen to the scriptures, if you read the scriptures closely, you will hear Christ having a say in all of that. All of the prophecies in the Old Testament anticipating the arrival of the Son of Man, the Christ, when he would enter the world, where he would enter the world, to what family he would belong, of what people he would belong. God had a say in each and every step of Jesus' birth and his entrance into the world as God is exercising his, his gracious sovereignty over the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man came. He entered willfully. We're even told in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
meaning he did not cling to his status as the Son of Man, that divine heavenly figure in Daniel chapter 7. He did not cling to it to the exclusion of you and I. No, it says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He humbled himself. He came towards us. But then you consider the third phrase, the Son of Man came. Why? He says in no uncertain terms, he came to not to be served, but to serve. This is a surprising role reversal. If the only image of the Son of Man that you have is the one in Daniel chapter 7, that description makes no sense. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to to serve. This is the one who came and why the Son of Man came into the world. In an article a while back for the Wall Street Journal, researcher uh, John Lear um, talks about how powerful people act differently in the world that is. And if you consider his article in light of what Jesus is doing here, you're going to see one of the, a beautiful contrast between he and me, between he and you, between he and every other person on the planet. Jonah Lear says in this article that most people are very nice as they're climbing the social ladder. But then he says once a person gets closer to the top, they start acting like beasts. He writes, as one business professor concluded, it's an incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately, tease in a hostile fashion, and become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage, noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, an area in the brain that's crucial for empathy and decision-making. Lear noted that there was a study in which psychologists asked members of a high-power group, asked them about speeding, and the group concluded that it was okay for them to speed, but that it was important for everyone else to follow the posted limits. And their rationale was that powerful people are important and they must have good reasons for speeding. And Lear then concludes, even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. Even the most virtuous person can be undone by the corner office. So you hear that, then you consider how the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And you, you wonder, is there any higher ring on the social ladder that a person can get than being God? Is there any more higher a, a being can go than where the Son of Man was, where Christ existed for all eternity? You can't get above Him. You can't get higher than Him. You can't have more power than God. And yet, how did God leverage his power? He leveraged his power by coming into the world to serve, not to be served. The problem with people like you and me is that power goes through our head because often our power is detached from our compassion. But not Christ's. Christ's power is embedded in his compassion. He wields his power in the universe universe with a compassionate heart with care and concern and love for creatures made in his image. So he did not consider himself too high to come our way. No, Christ stooped to serve. The Son of Man entered the world not to be served, 
but to serve. This Christ came down. This is glorious condescension. This is holy humility. This is power and compassion wed eternally and perfectly together in the heart of God. And so Christ comes and he says, I'm not here to be served by anyone. I'm here to serve everyone. You know, it's a humbling thing to become a Christian. It's a humbling thing to become a Christian. You see, religion tells us that we must serve to be, we must serve to be saved. That's what the basic essence of all religion in the world. You must serve to be saved. But what does the gospel tell you? What is Jesus telling you in this verse? He's not saying you must serve to be saved. He's saying you must be served to be saved. That's the gospel. That's the message of Advent. And so becoming a Christian is a humbling thing because it says, look, at some point in time, you've got to stop trying to work your way to God and justify yourself before him or before other people. At some point in time, you've just got to submit all of that and let Jesus serve you. Let Jesus save you. Let Jesus say, look, your needs are too big for you to handle. You cannot open your own prison door. It must be opened from outside of you. Becoming a Christian is a humbling thing. This is why perhaps some of you aren't yet Christians. You're too proud to be saved. You don't want to acknowledge your need. You don't want to think that you actually have a problem too big for you to handle and that you need a Savior to do for you what Jesus entered the world to do for you. Perhaps you're a lot like Peter. Peter, Peter the disciple, was a guy who didn't like being served. He was a guy that was constantly trying to prove himself to Jesus and to prove himself to his friends. And, and one day, this all came to a climax. And just before Jesus was arrested and taken to the cross, he brings his disciples into the upper room and they share what's called the Last Supper. And after they shared this meal together, Peter then, uh, Jesus then goes and he grabs a towel and he wraps it around his waist and he pulls out a basin full of water and he begins to go to each and every one of his disciples. And what does he do? He washes their feet. He washes the stinky, calloused feet of his disciples. The Son of Man, the God-Man, is now washing the feet of his disciples, even Judas. He was washing everybody's feet. But once he got to Peter, what did Peter do? Peter's initial reaction was, no, don't serve me like that. I don't need that type of action from you. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he says in John chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. What is he saying? He's saying the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That if you're going to benefit from who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, you've got to submit to his service. You've got to humble yourself enough to let him serve you, to let him do for you what he wants to do for you. He wants what's best for you, and he is what's best for you. And so there's a sense where, as Christians, we, it is a humbling thing to become a Christian. It is a humbling thing to be a Christian because the life we live as followers of Jesus are lives that are in constant need of Jesus' service. And you might hear that and think, well, why does the Bible in other places refer to us as servants? We talk about serving Jesus, and we talk about serving others, and we talk about doing all kinds of things. So if that is true, then what am I to make of this dynamic that to be a Christian means to be in 
constantly served by the Son of Man, constantly served by Jesus Christ. Well, it means that if Jesus is your servant, it means that you realize he's using all of his divine resources to help you, to strengthen you, to guide you, to support you, and to provide for you. It means that when you're reading the scriptures and you hear the scriptures telling you what you need to do, and you hear that command, okay, this is how I'm supposed to serve Jesus. I'm supposed to forgive those who sin against me. I am to care for the needy. I am to love the unlovable. I am to serve this person and that person in this kind of way and in that kind of way. When you're reading through the scriptures and you hear that call of Jesus on your life, don't think, okay, this is how I'm supposed to pull myself up and run and serve to Jesus. No, hear the commands of Jesus in the scriptures as his way of clarifying for you how he wants to serve you. So that means if you are in a relationship where you need to forgive another person, understand that until you see yourself forgiven by Jesus, it's going to be very hard for you to forgive that person. If you read in Scripture this beautiful declaration of humility and you think, okay, I must become a humble person, it's going to be very hard for you to be humble unless you consider how God humbled himself towards you in the person and the work of Jesus. Our service of Jesus is constantly undergirded by his service of us. So his commands are clarifications. This is what we learned a few weeks back when we looked at the the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we said that the love that God requires of us is the love that God supplies to us. And that's really good news. And the service you are to carry out in the world that is is service that is done first by Jesus for you. Because the Son of Man did what? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so let me encourage you to submit to his spectacular offer to be your servant. Jesus wants to serve you. Are you humble enough to let him? Jesus wants to serve you. We submit to his service. Let him be everything he wants to be for you. Let him do everything he wants to do through you. Let Jesus serve you. This is why he came. But then you consider how the last phrase in here carries so much. There's so much in it. I want you to see how This next phrase is Jesus' way of soliciting our submission, of soliciting our faith so that we would let him serve us in this way particularly. He goes on and says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And then he goes on and gives this packed statement and to give his life as a ransom for many. How is Jesus ultimately serving us? How did he ultimately serve us? Well, he gave his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom, when you hear that word today, you automatically, no doubt, think kidnapping or some type of terrorist activity. Somebody being kidnapped at a ransom's name to being paid to a powerful party so that you might go free. But all throughout scriptures, that word ransom isn't so much talking about kidnapping as much as it is talking about a, setting a prisoner free. It means in order for a prison who's in a prison a prisoner who's in a jail cell to go free a price has to be paid a ransom must be given so that the door can open and they can go out that's how the word ransom is used this is why Bonhoeffer would say 
A prison cell can only be opened from the outside, and that's a great picture of Advent. He's thinking about how God came from the outside of us to do something specifically for us, and here we are told to pay a ransom. But that's not the most important word in that verse, in my opinion. Jesus says he came to give his life. That means he came to die. He came to sacrifice himself. And he's doing it as a ransom or as, a, as some sort of payment. But then the most powerful word in that clause, I think, is that three-letter three letter English word, for. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the reason why I think that's the most powerful word in that exchange is because that word literally means in the place of. And it is that word that unlocks the key for you and I to understanding how can God be just and forgiving at the same time? How can you and I be set free from our prison cells without justice being ruptured? Well, here's how. Because when Jesus came, he came to give his life or as he came to give his life as a ransom for many, in the place of many people. He came, here's the big word, to die as your substitute. That word for speaks to how Jesus is substituting himself for sinners like you and me. That means that our salvation isn't God simply opening the door of our cell and letting us go free. No, it's God actually opening the door, letting us step out, and then him stepping in and taking our place. That's what that word means. It's, it's sacrificial substitution. This is what Jesus came to do. A guy by the name of Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish Franciscan, in the Auschwitz concentration camp back in World War II, there was a moment when a number of prisoners were selected for execution. And as they were being lined up to put to death, there was one of them who cried out, no, no, don't kill me. I'm a dad. I've got some kids. And, and this priest's heart was stirred in that moment. And so he stepped forward and he asked the executioners if he could take that father's place. His offer was accepted and the authorities let him go in and the prisoner went free. He stepped in and he was placed in an underground cell where he was left to die of starvation. Substitution taking someone's place. That's what that little three-letter word for is getting after. When Jesus says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm coming to take your place. I'm going to die your death. I'm going to pay the sentence your sin deserves. It's a powerful, powerful word. And, and I don't know how your heart responds to this image of of substitution and of sacrifice. I don't know if, if your heart melts in response to it as it should. But let me give you a couple of examples of why I think that this type of love, substitutionary sacrifice, is the only kind of love in the universe that can actually change a person. I'll give you a couple of, a couple of examples. Let's say you're in a relationship with an emotionally disturbed person. And that person who's emotionally disturbed, if she, she, he or she needs some healing, she, you need, he or she needs to be filled up emotionally. How are you going to do that for them? Well, you're going to step into relationship and you're going to love them. But how are you going to love them specifically? Well, you're going to love them by being there for them emotionally, right? In order to fill them up emotionally, you're going to have to love them. And in the process of loving them, what's going to happen to you? 
you will become emotionally drained. Your emotions will deplete. You will take a hit in the process of loving an emotionally disturbed person back to health. That's substitution. That's sacrifice. That's how that type of love can change someone for the better. Give you another example. Consider parents. Moms and dads in our midst, you know. You have the responsibility of raising your kids to grow up and to become self-sufficient, independent adults. But how's that going to happen? It's only going to happen if, in a sense, you substitute your independence for theirs. For about 20 years, you sacrifice your independence. For about 20 years, you substitute your independence for theirs so that they can grow towards becoming a more independent, mature, healthy Adult, it's substitutionary sacrifice. It's the type of love parents give to a kid so that they might be transformed, so that they might be changed. And if you're a parent, and perhaps you're, if you don't love your kids that way, what's going to happen to them? Well, they're going to grow up physically. They're going to get bigger. But they're not going to grow up emotionally. They're not going to grow up uh, to become responsible independent contributors to society. So there's some harm that can happen if sacrificial substitution isn't practiced in your parenting. If you're not willing to sacrifice your your independence and substitute your independence for theirs, it can cause some harm. So I give you those two analogies just to think about this concept of substitutionary sacrifice. You see it woven into the fabric of God's created order. Why? Because that's the heart of transforming love. That's how hearts and lives and people are transformed. Only through the love that takes the form of substitutionary sacrifice. This is what Jesus is declaring. Saying, I have come not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to take your place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, you see this explicitly stated where we are told that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There's that word again. For us, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. He's saying, look, I've come to take your place in the prison cell. I've come to be executed on your behalf. He's saying, I've come to take your place, and with me comes everything. That means in the place of your sin comes my righteousness. That means when you are served by Jesus, in the place of your fear comes the assurance of his love. That means in the place of your guilt comes the assurance of, your, of his forgiveness. That means in the place of your shame comes his honor. That means in the place of your death comes life. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is what Advent is ultimately all about. C.S. Lewis would paint this beautifully in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he would write that, that moment when Aslan is going to his death and he says, you know, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, he says the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That substitutionary sacrifice would start changing everything. This is what Jesus is going after in chapter 10, verse 41. So you might say, in the place of our sin comes his righteousness, of our fear comes his assurance, of our guilt comes his forgiveness, of our shame comes his honor, of our death comes his life, of our imprisonment comes his freedom. 
Now, I don't know if you guys are tired of these kind of analogies yet or not, but I, I'm going to give you another one. Harry Potter. In the story of, the Harry, of Harry Potter, there's a house elf named Dobby. And, house elf, and as a house elf, he belongs to this family that doesn't treat him very well. They, they treat him harshly. And every time he messes up, he gets punished. He's terribly treated by this family. And one day he meets Harry Potter and they start having a conversation. And Harry Potter's learning about Dobby and his situation. And this is what Dobby says to him. He says, Dobby is always having to punish himself for something. I'm always having to punish myself for something. That's just the way it is for me. And then Potter looks at him and says, why don't you leave? Why don't you escape? Why don't you get out? And listen to what he says. Dobby says, no, a house elf must be set free. We can't leave. We can't escape. We, there's no... There's no knob on the inside of my prison cell. I have to be set free. And the family that I belong to will never set Dobby free. Dobby will serve the family until he dies. And then he goes on to talk to Dobby about, okay, well, if a house elf has to be set free, then what needs to happen? He says, well, a house elf must be presented with clothing. Some type of payment must be given. what's, What's being talked about? Well, a ransom must be paid. And that ransom would take the form of clothing, some type of covering. The house elf would need to be covered in order to go free. And then Harry Potter asks if he can help Dobby. I'd love to help you. I want to I help you get out of this situation. And when Dobby learned that, that Harry Potter wanted to help him, what does he say to him? He says, oh, I've, I've heard about you. I've heard about your greatness But of your goodness, I had no idea. I heard about your greatness, but about your goodness, I had no idea. And I'm wondering if some of you have heard about the greatness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God. Perhaps you've heard and maybe even believe truths about the wrath of God. But the goodness of God right now, perhaps you have no idea. And the message of Advent is not only our God is our God great, our God is good. He's so good that he came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us be a church who worships God, not only for his greatness, but for the goodness he shows us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let our hearts swell in response to the service and the sacrifice and the substitution that the Son of Man came to give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you in this moment asking for you to move in us and through us and among us in ways that will melt our hearts, cause our hearts to swell as we consider the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, as we think about your justice there and as we think about your forgiveness there, would you help us to see your goodness in the person and the work of Jesus. God, we love you and we ask for all of this in his name. Amen.